but you will understand how light can be a joy. You will understand even at times how light uh, can be overwhelming when you've been in darkness. If you've ever walked across uh, your dark basement and your kids have left their Legos out, you know how annoying darkness can be when you step on one of those uh, Legos. And so we have in Scripture images of sin being like darkness, despair being like darkness, hard suffering times being like darkness, but also the Lord being one who is light. This comes out in a number of different ways in the scriptures. It can be the light of revelation, God showing us something, revealing something to us as if our our eyes were opened as if we are are coming into a light where we didn't see something previously. This can also be describing holiness. God is a God of light and we need to walk in light. We need to walk in a manner that is in keeping with his word. There are a number of different ways that the imagery of light is used. The point that we want to focus on here this morning is that Jesus is the promise of light to the world. Jesus is the promise of light to the world. And so we have here in Isaiah chapter nine, a prophecy of the coming of Jesus. Now, you'll notice it doesn't say words like manger. It doesn't say there will be an ox and lamb lying down next to him in the manger. Uh, It doesn't even give us the name Mary. Nevertheless, it is about the promise of the coming son who will be from the line of David, who will one day reign on David's throne in David's kingdom as a servant and son of David. And so it is so important in the Gospels that in Matthew and Luke, we have the the genealogy of Jesus. And one, I think, is a legal genealogy. One is uh, the birth genealogy, probably, of Mary herself. Uh, Nevertheless, we have this focus on Jesus comes from the line of David as to his human nature. So Jesus is the promise of light to the world. Jesus is God in the flesh, revealing himself to us and bringing us hope, bringing us righteousness, bringing us goodness so that in him we find salvation and liberation. Jesus is the light of the world. First, this morning, we simply want to just focus on what we've just said. The sun is the light. So you'll see in in verse six, for to us, a child is born to us, a son is given. But if you back up into verse Uh, one, you have this light dawning. And then in verse two, notice that the land of the north is living in gloom and driven out. Now, you need to understand that Isaiah wrote this uh, hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus came. Isaiah's ministry was in the time of some of the Old Testament kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah being two of them. And the Assyrians were coming in. And at this point, if you remember your biblical history, the the Old Testament kingdom of Israel is divided into two nations. You have the nation that's capital is Jerusalem, and that's where Ahaz and then later Hezekiah are reigning. That's where the line and throne of David continues. You also have the land to the north, the land in the region of Galilee, where you have the ten tribes of the north. You also have the pagan nation of Samaria and the Assyrians 
The ones who had the capital in Nineveh, you remember Jonah going to Nineveh, that was to the Assyrians. The Assyrians come down and they invade the land and they are taking it over and they are destroying it. So if you back up to chapter 8, verse 21 and 2, this is a picture of what will happen in the land. There will be this darkness. There will be this gloom. God is judging this land for its sin. He says they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and continually will speak continuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upwards. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's a picture of What is going to happen when the Assyrians come in, they would capture the people, they would take them and they would relocate them and the land would become spiritually dark. In fact, you see a few verses earlier instead of in verse 19, instead of consulting God and praying to him and inquiring of him and seeking his face, it says they were inquiring of mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter. Uh, They were going down and they were talking to people that would consult with demons and spirits, people who believed that they were talking to the dead. They were not seeking the face of God and they were in spiritual darkness. And the Assyrians would come in and they would destroy this and and the darkness uh, would continue. And so there is this overlying idea here that God has judged his people. And he's judged them and it's darkness. And then Isaiah gives us hope. Well, first, verse one continues with this theme of gloom. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So he's laid out this darkness and then he says there will be no gloom for her who was anguished in the former times. Meaning in the past, this is how it's been. And and even from the time of of Isaiah, it's, it's still a little bit future to Isaiah as well. But in the former times, he brought forth into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Naphtali was one of the tribes, the 12 tribes of Judah. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. So if you kind of have a map of Israel in your mind and you remember how the Jordan River kind of just cuts right down through to the Dead Sea and then you go uh, up to the top and you have the Sea of Capernaum and and further up above that you have the Sea of Galilee Uh, to the west, just on the west side of the Sea of Galilee is the land of Zebulon. And then down kind of to the southwest, a little more towards the sea, is the land of Zebulon. It is right where the Assyrians came through as they came into the land. They had to come from the north into the south as they made their way to Jerusalem. And so for hundreds of years after the time of Isaiah... There were other peoples transplanted into that region after the Assyrians took over. The Babylonians eventually came in Uh, after the Babylonian Empire was destroyed. You have the Medes and the Persians. Then you have Alexander the Great trampling through the region. And then by the time of Jesus, you have the Roman Empire. But notice you have this language here in verse one. But in the latter days. 
in a, in a future time, in a coming time, Isaiah is saying, there will be this glorious way to the sea. Something good is going to happen in the region of Galilee, is what Isaiah is saying. He uses in Isaiah chapter 2 this language of the latter days. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The idea here is that God is going to do something great. God is going to establish his Kingdom and mountain has imagery of of kingship and of ruling and of authority and, and and it was considered in the ancient world that kings and gods reigned from mountains and so it's imagery that they would understand that one day the Lord is going to come and He is going to reign and the people of God will walk in the light and from Isaiah's perspective that is future that is the latter days. This is why the book of Hebrews says that in the past, in various ways and and many times and places, the Lord spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken in son, in his son. The latter days, the last days, the revelation of God uh, coming to us, the light dawns. And so we have in verse two that the people living in this northern region will see a great light. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shown. Notice how the prophet speaks in the past tense here. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light on them has light shown. Now, the light hadn't dawned yet from Isaiah's perspective. But as he prophesies, he is putting himself in the shoes of someone who is there saying this light has come. When you think about the certainty of the word of God, God can speak of future events as if they are past tense. Why? Because God guarantees that they will come to pass. God guarantees that it will happen. His word cannot be broken. This word here for darkness, where it says those who have dwelt in deep darkness, you're probably familiar with this word and don't even know it. It's in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's the same word, shadow of death, deep Darkness. You think of that imagery of the shadow of death, of, of despair. You, you, this, is, this is not walking down uh, in a valley and then, you know, the sun just kind of pops behind a cloud uh, or the sun is setting and so it's getting a little bit dark. This is, this is gloom. This is, this is terrifying. This is hardship, the valley of the shadow of death, a, a deep darkness that comes over your soul, almost almost. Kind of like some of us may feel if you've ever wrestled with depression uh, or struggled through despair in a time that God walks with us through these things, particularly in the loss of a loved one. It's this deep darkness and the people were in it and a light shone in their midst. 
Psalm 44:19 uses the same word. You have broken us in a place of jackals, covered us with the shadow of death. The word is used nine times actually in Job, often speaking of kind of that motif of, of the despair. In Jeremiah, their wanderings in the wilderness. Remember the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness because they disobeyed God? Remember just how hard that was and people were dying left and right because they had abandoned God? That is described as, in Jeremiah, a land of drought and deep darkness. Just let that kind of sink in for a minute, just how spiritually darkened these people in the region were. It should remind us of what it means for ourselves that when we were dead in our sins, trapped in, in spiritual darkness, not seeing uh, the truth before we were saved. And it is only the light of the Lord Jesus Christ that can liberate us from these things and bring the light into our life. What's fascinating is that Jesus in his ministry fulfills these verses. Matthew chapter 4. When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. So why does he go to Galilee? Matthew continues. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali. So that as he spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan of the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death on them. The light has dawned. Matthew 417 from that time, Jesus began to preach saying what? Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. What was the light dawning in their midst? It was Jesus coming, the Son of God, but also His preaching of the Gospel. The Gospel brings light. The Gospel brings us to the person of Jesus Christ, who is the light. Jesus says in John 8.12, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. You have the light of life. Not only does Jesus proclaim the light in his message, repent and turn from your sins, believe in me. He is the light. I submit to you when you share the gospel with someone, you are seeking to bring the light to them. But I submit to you that you and I are not the light. At best, we are we are the bearers of the torch. We are pointing them to Jesus, who is the light. And, and as you use the word of God, as you share Jesus with them, you are like taking a flashlight and shining it into their eyes. And you are praying that the Holy Spirit would would open their eyes so that their heart might see the light. Just as 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, the God who says let light shine in darkness has uh, let light shine into their darkened hearts so that they might see the glory of God on the face of Christ. When you share the gospel, you are pointing people to the light. You are using the word of God to allow the light to shine into their life. And yet the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ has to do 
the work. Jesus remains the light to us. This means that Jesus Christ is our only hope. This means that if we want to be delivered from the despair of our sin, from the darkness of our uh, life, from the, the corrupting darkness that sin is, we need to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need to be like the people in Isaiah's times who were going after uh, mediums and necromancers, reading our astrology charts in the, in the paper or on the Internet, going down the street and consulting with tarot cards. We need to turn to Jesus and the Word of God. He's the light. He gives us the truth. He saves us. He shows us just how guilty we are under sin, but then liberates us from that bondage to it. He's the great king that comes to take away the oppression, as we'll see. Those who see the light then will begin in their life walking in the light, just as he is in the light. So second this morning, not only is Jesus is the, the light, but Jesus is the light who brings joy and drives out oppression. So there is then an increase in joy in knowing Jesus. Look at verse three. You have multiplied the nation. So here the promise is you have the people of God who are dwindling down there. They are um being taken over and run over by the Assyrians, even in the time of Jesus, they are they're still kind of scattered. There are Gentiles in their mix. And and here you're going to multiply the nation, not just, I think, physically as a nation, but but as those who are saved of the people of God, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as joy at the harvest. They are glad as when they divide the spoil. So. The imagery, again, the nation of Assyria and others are going to trample down. There's going to be doom and darkness. And then as the light dawns, there is joy and excitement. There is a a palpable emotion as the people see Jesus and experience Jesus, just as a harvest might bring joy. Now, this is this is kind of a, a hard image for us to get our minds around, because we don't really live in a farming culture anymore. Uh, Some of you grow up on farms, and and so you can maybe identify a little bit more with this. But you don't get joyful when you go down to to Walmart and are like, yes, they had lettuce. Yes, vegetables. You know, you don't go to the butcher and like, yeah, steak. Well, maybe some of us do, but 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 in, in in a in a seasonal When you are dependent upon the harvest, you're putting all this work in over the summer. And and man, if one storm comes through, one hailstorm, one horrendous rainstorm, your crop can just get wiped out. And so the end of the season comes, you bring everything in, you put it in your barns and your silos and and whatever you have. And you are just one, you're you're dead tired because you're exhausted from all the work that you've put in. But there in that exhaustion, there's just this joy. We got it in from the fields. You know, as long as the tornado doesn't hit our barn, we're okay, right? It's done. The closest analogy that I think you and I can maybe identify with is when you think of the history of the pilgrims and the first Thanksgiving, how they survived that that winter, how people around them were dying because of the food shortage. They didn't know if all of them or any of them would even make it. 
And then they make it through that first season. They're able to plant some things. You know the, the history as it goes. And then at the end, they celebrate with that Thanksgiving meal. There is joy because God had provided for them. God had protected for them. It's fascinating in Psalm chapter 4, verse 6, this same imagery is described. Who, uh, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. In peace I both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That, that safety that you have when you, you've brought all your food in and you know you can make it through the winter, God makes us lie down in an even greater safety. That joy when your barn is full and your belly is full and you have a little bit of wine. Yes, it was real wine that gladdened the heart. And they were excited and joyous and you just celebrate to the Lord. Scripture is saying that when the light of Jesus dawns, it will be even greater joy. It's fascinating to me that in the ministry of Jesus, two things happen. One, well, more than two, but two things I think that connect to this passage. One, you see his miracles of healing and liberating people from demonic oppression and darkness. He literally goes through the land delivering people from darkness. Again, from Matthew chapter 4. And they went all through Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. I mean, this is the region that Isaiah is talking about and prophesying about. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various disease and pains and those oppressed by demons, having the seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. All the things that were causing despair and oppression, all the the spiritual battles that were going on all around them, Jesus is taking care of them as he is bringing the kingdom to their midst. And then people are getting saved, right? Who's primarily getting saved, especially the Gospels focus on what? The tax collectors and the prostitutes. The people that would have been seen in the most darkness. Tax collectors were, in that culture, understood to be corrupt. They were kind of our equivalent of mafia loan sharks. They could shake you down. Prostitutes, I don't think we need to elaborate on why there would be darkness and sin associated with that. And what does Jesus do as these people are getting saved? Think of the joy that they have. They start pouring wine and having feasts and celebrating and and they're just overwhelmed with emotion. Why? Because they understood what it was like to be in such darkness, in such sin. The the person driven by money, driven by get rich and it's not fulfilling him. And so he just tries to get more. The, The person driven by sex. And sleeping around and and finding themselves just to be in this darkness and and not having liberated and maybe even leading to depression as some people that get involved in those things have have found increases in depression in people that participate in that. And now the sun comes and they hear the gospel and they believe in him and there is joy. And what do the Pharisees complain about? 
They complain that John. Well, let me just read it for you. Uh, oh, I didn't put the line in about John. Well, they complain that John uh, didn't celebrate enough. He was kind of crazy out there in the wilderness eating uh, locusts and honey. What did they complain about Jesus? The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend to tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus, these people are too excited around you. I submit to you that Jesus did not throw parties for the sake of parties. Not in the way, let's say, the contemporary college student parties. Hey, we're just bored. We're going to party. The party will fill some sort of emptiness in my life. Jesus partied with sinners who were celebrating and partying because they had come to the gospel. The joy was a real joy, a lasting joy. And they weren't afraid to express that joy in a feast, in pouring out of wine, in, in celebrating, in, in appropriate revelry, laughter around the table, telling good jokes, thankful for this life that they've been liberated from. The people walking in darkness had seen a great light. And when you come to the gospel, when you understand what it what it means to have your sins forgiven, how dare we not be excited when someone gets saved? How dare we not rejoice with the angels in heaven? The worst thing we can do when someone gets saved is just kind of fold our hands back and say, well, we'll see if they're really saved. Obviously. Someone can make a fake profession of faith and time will tell. But in that moment, don't stifle the Holy Spirit. There is joy when people come to the gospel. There is joy in seeing Jesus. And and even you think about from Isaiah's time over 600 years until Jesus comes. The darkness was dark. And while there was the glimmer of hope of prophets along the way and God working in various times and places, even after the time of Isaiah, for 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament, God had not spoken to his people. No prophet had arisen. And then the light dawns. How excited will you be when you see Jesus for the first time, either at his return or at your death, if you're a believer in the Lord? How excited do you think they were in their sins, hearing that there was hope and good news? So in the son, there is this liberation, this freedom from sin for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. You have broken as on the day of Midian and every boot and trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled up in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. The picture here is he's going to make peace. Now, Isaiah is focusing on what God will do to some of these nations. And and that still remains in the future for us as one day when the Lord returns, rebellion against God will be trampled out. But there is in an unfolding of these promises, God delivering people in the person of Jesus Christ. The yoke of their burden, the staff of the shoulder that oppresses them, that is pushing them down, that is keeping them in bondage, slavery to their sins. 
Slavery to these nations. Slavery to evil. God redeems us from. God saves us. Sometimes we forget how oppressive sin can be. I think that's particularly true for those of us that have grown up in the church, and I include myself in this. We look at people stuck in sins. Maybe it's sins with drugs, sins with alcohol, sins with uh, sex or whatever it might be. And we just say, you know, well, they just need to get their act together. We might say, well, you know, of course they need to come to Jesus. But then even when they come to Jesus, we treat it like, well, this should be easy now. Why aren't they? Why are they still struggling with this presence of sin in their life? And we forget the burden of sin. Does Christ liberate us from that burden? Absolutely. But we forget the oppressive effects of sin. I'm sure that these women that Jesus saves out of their background in prostitution struggled in the future as God had saved them. They didn't probably just go out and say, well, I'm going to get married and have a happy marriage and happy life. They probably came with some emotional baggage, as we might put it. Sin is oppressive. A person that has an addiction to drugs, God can liberate that from them immediately. And yet there can still be an ongoing effect of some of those things in their life. That struggle, that feeling at times like it is on your back still, even though you know that the Lord has liberated you from it. It is the struggle with sin that we all face. But we see here that Jesus is the great liberator from this oppression. And the analogy here is in the day of Midian when the Midianites were trampling and running through the land and and destroying the crops. And remember how Gideon is threshing wheat down in secret because these Midians are just running through the land oppressing. And how did God deliver them in the day of Midian? This is cool. I love I love this. The day of Midian analogy here, because God showed the light, right? The 300 soldiers of, of, that went with Gideon and they marched with the trumpet and, the, and the, the, the clay jar that covered the flame and they surround the army that's in the valley and, and they break that jar and they blast the trumpet and they say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And, and literally the valley of darkness where the army was, was laying there and sleeping burst with light. It's this connection. God lets light shine into the darkness. And what did the Midianites do? They were so terrified that they started killing each other. They, they said, well, if there's this much light all around us with this army, there must be the army in our midst. Start, you know, and they just they assume that the next guy that they're walking up to must be the enemy. So they start killing him. Oh, my gosh, that's my buddy. Well, the, then you get killed by the next guy that assumes you're the enemy. You think about that, because if you're going into a war, not everybody is going to be carrying the torch and the trumpet. And so if you see 300 torches and trumpets, there's a good chance that typically, I don't know what the numbers would have been, but just throw it out like maybe one torch per 10 men, one torch per 50 men. And you see that many around you and, and, and that's just up on the hills Who blows their trumpet when they're far off? You blow the trumpet when the battle's at hand. 
And so they assume everybody around them must be the enemy. Of course, God is sending them into the stupor, but this is how God liberates them. And then in chapter eight of Judges, they go on and they um, um, they defeat the two kings of Midian. And then Gideon says to them at the end, they say, make me we'll make you the king, Gideon. And Gideon says this, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. The promise here of Isaiah 9 is the Lord will rule over us and he will defeat the enemies as in the day of Midian. And he will do it by shining the light. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ is that light. And when Christ comes, he comes to rule amongst his people. Gideon turned down the rule, although if you kind of read a little bit later in 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 judges, you kind of wonder if he really did. He kind of comes across as he turns down the rule uh, and, and, well, of course, I don't want to reign. God should reign. But then he starts acting like a king anyways. Um, but Jesus is that perfect king who liberates the oppressor and rules with a heart of love as well as justice and righteousness. And so we have then the next uh, section of the text here. The third thing this morning, the son who is the light is both God and man. So I have five things that I want to highlight from these last two verses here. First, Jesus comes as a child. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born under the law. And so we sing it at Christmas. Infant holy, infant lowly. For his bed, a cattle stall, oxen lowing. Little knowing Christ, the babe is Lord of all. And then one of the other verses, thus rejoicing, free from sorrow, praises, voicing great the morrow. Christ, the babe was born for you. The babe was born for you. And his coming is the announcement of light and liberation of the people of God as he will die on the cross and rise again and become the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Then it says also he shall shoulder the rulership. Now, I used to think that this analogy here, the government shall be on his shoulders, was a way of saying, yeah, the government's going to stick it to him. The Jews and the Romans are going to oppress him and put the cross on him. But really, it's a positive thing here in this context. He is going to shoulder the kingdom of God. He is going to uphold a good and mighty rule. This this he's not going to be a corrupt king. He's not going to be a king who puts a, a heavy burden and yoke upon you and oppresses people. He shoulders the government and it is a good government. It is a righteous rulership. It is a great and mighty kingship. And so, again, connecting to some of Isaiah's other prophecies, Isaiah chapter two, verse three and four. And many shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob, or excuse me, to the house of the God of Jacob, that they may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their shear, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. They shall learn, nor shall they learn war anymore. This aspect of peace is still in the future. 
But as God brings his kingdom to earth, a kingdom that he now reigns in, in the future, as Jesus is shouldering this government now, as he comes down in return, it will be in triumph. And he will establish peace over all the earth, which is why we call him the Prince of Peace. He has the authority and the ability to do what no human being can ever or will able ever be able to do in this life. And that's establish lasting, true peace. We try. We have some efforts and successes of that, either at the global level or even in our personal lives as we make peace with others. But only Christ makes true peace. That's why, for one, and one reason, that there should be such peace in the life of the church. Because it's a demonstration that Christ is our King. It's a demonstration that we live under the Lordship of Christ. Uh, as we're walking through these five things we want to say about Jesus, this is the most important. Number three, he is truly God. Now, I knew what these verses were saying when I started studying it this week, but I didn't understand the depths to which it says it. What I mean by that, I didn't understand all of the connections there are to other rich scriptures, particularly in Isaiah with this language. So we have here, he is the wonderful counselor. This, by the way, is not something that you would say like to your therapist. This isn't like psychological, you're a wonderful counselor, you're a wonderful therapist. This is kingly language and wonderful doesn't mean it's you're doing a good job. Oh, you're a wonderful person. This is language of things that only God does. God who works wonders. The word itself, wonderful, uh, this, this form of it is used 13 times in the Old Testament and only one time does it not refer to God and the working of his mighty wonders. Calling him a wonderful counselor. Counselor meaning ruler. Meaning someone who reigns. So in Isaiah 11, 2, the spirit of counsel and might. Micah 4, 9. Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? You see how king and and counselor are used as the same thing there. Counselor meaning, you know, like someone, uh, not like a lawyer, you might call it, well, counselor. But kings were judges in the ancient world. They ruled with authority. They had counsel. You listen to their counselor. and, And here, Jesus being wonderful counselor, he is doing what only God can do. Isaiah 28, 29 This comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel. Isaiah is telling us in Isaiah how to interpret Isaiah 9, 6. Who is the wonderful counselor? Well, it's the son. Who is the one who gives wonderful counselor? Well, it is the Lord God. And he uses the divine name there. Jehovah, the Lord of hosts. What is he saying about Jesus? Jesus is truly God just as much as he is truly man. Same way with this statement that he is mighty God. It's the word mighty with the shortened word El, which we get the longer Elohim from. Isaiah 10, 21. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. Who's he talking about there? God, Jehovah, But he's saying in Isaiah 9 that that this son is mighty God. 
You can read other places in Scripture. Jeremiah 28, 18, uh, speaking of the Lord. Oh, great and mighty God. Nehemiah 9, 32. Our God, the great and mighty. The Son is truly God. And Isaiah is telling us that. It's not just that we have the New Testament. It's not just something that the early church put together and decided to come up with. If you read the Dan Brown conspiracy theories, uh, they'll say, well, it was 300 years after the time of Christ when the church invented that Jesus was God. No, this is 700 years before Jesus came. And they're saying it is going to be God in the flesh. He is the everlasting father. Now. It does not mean that the Son is God the Father in terms of being that person in the Trinity. There's a distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinity. But what it does mean is that, one, He's eternal, everlasting. But two, Jesus is the Father, the Shaper, the Former, the Creator of God's people. God is often called a father to his people because he calls them out and he shapes them and in him they find salvation. There would be no people of God if there wasn't God. And here there would be no people of God if there wasn't the son. Again, Isaiah is the one that tells us how to interpret this. So Isaiah forty twenty eight, the Lord is everlasting God. But then later, Isaiah sixty six sixteen. O Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, our father, our redeemer of old is our our redeemer from of old is your name. doesn't say everlasting there, but from of old is, is the same idea in Scripture as everlasting when it refers to God. The point is everlasting father is a description of Jehovah and the son who is distinct from the Father, is still Jehovah, the Father of the people of God. It cannot get clearer than this, that Jesus is truly God. You'll notice then also he establishes the throne of David, Isaiah 9-7, of his government, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it. I was going to make a lot of connections to the New Testament and Old Testament here. I have probably a whole other page of Scripture. If you want them afterwards, come and I'll give them. You can write them down and look them up. The point is this. Jesus fulfills the promises of David. He is both God, truly God, and truly man. And Jesus in his death and resurrection and ascension is now reigning as the descendant and the son of David. His kingdom has not been postponed. As he sits down at the right hand of the Father, he is reigning and ruling now as the Davidic king, and that kingdom will continue to increase. He tells us this in the parables. You know, the kingdom is like a mustard seed, and you plant it, and it grows into this giant tree. And as the gospel is going out, as people are getting saved, the kingdom is growing. As the Lord returns and he makes himself visible on the earth and he defeats evil and sets up a millennial kingdom and then has the final judgment, the kingdom is growing. And then there will be the new heavens and the new earth 
where all the promises of God have been fulfilled. And we will dwell with God and God with us. But Jesus is the king now. The promise was given to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will be uh, the Lord. God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. There will be no end. The son is the, the son who is given is the son who was promised. Revelation eleven fifteen. the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And then Revelation 22, five, just to pull all of these themes together and the night will be no more. They will no, need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. That's the saints reigning with God. Because Jesus is the light and the king who reigns. Let me make. Excuse me, let me make four very quick statements that you can hang on to for some application as you go home. First, God keeps his promises. Sometimes we just need to remind ourselves that again. Like we know it, but you start going through a hardship and you start wondering, where is God? God keeps his promises and he is not slow in keeping his promises as some count slowness, as the scriptures say. It took him 600 years to fulfill this and not because he was slow, because he was setting it all up, waiting for the fullness of time, because it was according to his plans and purposes. When you are waiting for God to answer your prayers, do not think he does not hear you. Do not think he will not keep his promises. Second, the Lord Jesus Christ reigns. This is the confession of the church. Jesus Christ is Lord. And the promise here in Isaiah is fulfilled even now in Jesus as he reigns and rules. Third, the son liberates. He liberates from sin. He removes oppression. If you are struggling with sin, if you are dealing with a besetting sin, come afresh to the son. Maybe you're not a believer and you need to turn for the first time. Maybe you are a believer and you just sort of drifted a bit from the Lord. You haven't been reading your word. You haven't been spending time in prayer. You haven't gotten help from Christian brothers and sisters that you can trust. The son liberates. Come and experience fellowship again with the son as a brother and sister in Christ. Notice also that the son liberates from oppression. I was going to make some comments here about justice and righteousness, but notice that this is a theme throughout Scripture. The Son establishes justice and righteousness, particularly in the Scriptures for the orphan, for the widow, for the poor, for the people who are the most needy. He comes and He cares for them. In the church, we should be the people because we are people of the Son, the people who care for the needy. Finally, have joy this Christmas because the Son has come and saved. If you throw a Christmas party, throw the best Christmas party you possibly can. Make it an 
awesome party. Have joy, though. Not in the party favors and the elements and the giving of gifts and the, the celebration and the eggnog and maybe someone spiked the eggnog so you're even more excited. I, you know, don't get drunk. That's a sin. Have joy. But have joy in your salvation. The light has dawned into your midst and into your hearts. We sing joy to the world. Sometimes we don't have joy in our hearts because we don't think like the tax collector and the prostitute that celebrated because they knew how bad their sins were. Have joy at Christmas. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you for your goodness and your kindness. We thank you. We thank you for all that you have done for us in the sending of the Son. Lord, give us that joy, not in human things, not in the parties. Lord, give us joy in our salvation. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.